the common task of uh, human political life is uh, instantiating this shared perception of justice and injustice. If your neighbor needs money, you can go next door and give your neighbor some food, money, your time. If you have a skill, you can teach someone a skill and further their education and help them that way. If you don't have money, if you don't have food, it's other ways. You can help people as a community. But the, the tyranny is particularly effective at eroding social bonds. Right. So we're seeing that the only way that they were able to achieve the disparity to create an opportunity to call us at-risk, marginalized, disabled, was through the force of police, through the state violence that is inflicted upon us, through dismantling families, through those services and referrals, through mandatory reporting that was not utilized as a family planning option. It is successful when it is capable of eroding trust between citizens, of alienating their sense of political enfranchisement, and of keeping them in poverty. I think that socialists should come to understand that on the eve of the Civil War, 1861, the most valuable property in the United States, as is well understood, even by mainstream historians, is the property in enslaved Africans. And so to try to understand 1776 and the origins of the United States without understanding property. All those daughters, how will those daughters survive given the fundamental role of women as property? What is the dollification of women? The objectification of women? The commodification of women? The rulers who are distinct by one measure, that is their wealth, mistake themselves to be distinct by all measures. What is it about the very presence of we males with our insecurity, anxiety, and our fear? Oftentimes the response is what? This is Philosophy for the People. I'm your host, Nathan Wiley, here with producer Jessica Cook. Hello. Today we discuss Aristotle's social and political philosophy with Dr. Sarah Brill. Dr. Brill is the department chair of philosophy in the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield University. She is currently working on, among other things, an essay on intelligence and animal sociality. She has published widely on topics that are at once highly specialized in the area of ancient Greek philosophy, including tragedy, biology, zoology, and psychology, while at the same time highly relevant for a wide variety of broader academic and non-academic interests, including contemporary critical theory and practice, racial justice, and reproductive justice. Her latest book, Fresh Off the Press with Oxford University, is Aristotle on the concept of shared life. And it is this book, Professor, that made my week, and I'm both delighted and grateful to have the opportunity to speak with you about it today. Thank you very much, Nathan, um, and congratulations on the success of your series. It's been a real pleasure to listen to these first round of episodes, and I'm delighted to get to be here for the final one. Oh, fantastic. Well, it's very kind for, of you to both listen and to be with us for what is our final episode of the first season of Philosophy for the People, which is very exciting. So, Professor, adopting the perspective of a publisher, I thought about the various ways in which your book could be categorized. It is, of course, a work in the history of philosophy, written with scholarly rigor and precision. It is also a work of social and political philosophy. But I would also describe it more freely as something like a contemporary psychopolitical treatise written with an expert genealogical and diagnostical eye, and as is made especially clear in the coda, 
with a view to better understanding some of the social and political problems with which we are now faced. Mm. Thank you, Nathan, uh, both for those comments and for the time and attention you've given this book. You are right to uh, identify a genealogical <clears throat> or diagnostic aspiration to the book. My hope was uh, that I would be able to identify a kind of dynamic at work in Aristotle's thought that might help sharpen our eyes for a similar dynamic at work in other times and places. One of the things that I most uh, admire about Plato and Aristotle as political theorists is the intertwining of ethics and politics in their thought, so that when they turn to do some diagnostic work of their own time and place, they do so with a keen vision of the interpenetration of uh, psuche and polis, of family dynamic, uh, political institution, and individual psychological makeup. So my hope was to identify a similar dynamic at work in Aristotle's treatment of Zoe, of life, and its relationship to the model of ownership that he develops in his politics. Brilliant. Yes. And an aspiration of this discussion is to get at exactly what that dynamic is. Mm. And as you put it, to sharpen our eye for being able to recognize that dynamic at work in other times and places, including, I would say, uh, our present circumstances here in 2020. We get a clear impression, I think, of the contemporary relevance of Aristotle on the concept of shared life from the very first sentence. In a particularly dramatic moment in his treatise on politics, you write, Aristotle describes in some detail the systematic erosion of trust, friendship, frank speech, and economic security that are characteristic of a tyranny, and the fear, isolation, paranoia, and poverty that replace them. In Aristotle's analysis, a tyranny thrives on the dismantling of social bonds, that is, the institutions and qualities that allow humans to share their lives with one another. Those are the first two sentences of the book, and Professor, what Aristotle describes is definitely something we as a society, I think, need to be thinking and dialoguing about today, since it uh, pretty well describes the reality into which we all seem, at some level, to feel ourselves to be entering if we're not already there. So at this particularly dramatic moment you referenced in Aristotle's centuries-old treatise on politics, what does he have to say about the nature of tyrannies and what they do to societies? That's mm, a great question, Nathan. Um, so if we were to locate the tyranny within Aristotle's broader characterization of politeiai, which we tend to translate as regimes, uh, he locates it as one of three deviant kinds of regime. The proper forms of regime are kingship, aristocracy, and what we tend to translate as polity. And their deviant forms are tyranny, oligarchy, and democracy. But the, the tyranny is particularly called out by Aristotle because it is particularly effective at eroding social bonds. In fact, Aristotle identifies a kind of threefold attack on the political bond that tyranny undertakes. That is, it is successful when it is capable of eroding trust between citizens, of alienating their sense of political enfranchisement, and of keeping them in poverty. So tyranny really represents uh, the strategic use of isolation, alienation, and poverty for the sake of the interest of the tyrant. All deviant regimes are deviant in Aristotle's mind because they serve not the interests of the ruler, but of the ruled. Tyranny is a kind of extreme case of exactly this focus. Yes, the, the tyrant's desire, you write, is to serve only mm -hmm. his own pleasure mm -hmm. and to make all whom he rules servants of his pleasure. Mm -hmm. And that requires that he destroy the common bond and replace it with his own private good as he perceives it. Let's take a look. You quote Aristotle on Aristotle's summary of tyranny's three main aims. Mm -hmm. Tyranny aims at three things, Aristotle writes. One, 
that the ruled have only modest thoughts, for a small-souled person would not conspire against anyone. Second, that they distrust one another, for a tyranny will not be overthrown before some persons are able to trust each other. And third, an incapacity for activity, for no one will undertake something on behalf of those who are incapable, so that not even a tyranny will be overthrown where the capacity is lacking. While the sitting U.S. president, Donald Trump, has been described by some political commentators as an aspiring tyrant, we have, as of late, more commonly been hearing the U.S. regime described not as a tyranny, at least not yet, but as an oligarchy and no longer a democracy. Now, all three of these forms of government, as you mentioned, tyranny, oligarchy, and democracy, are described in Aristotle's account of the various types of governing regimes as deviant regimes. We've touched on tyranny, and we'll return to it in a little bit more detail shortly. What are some of the features peculiar to oligarchy in Aristotle's account? Mm-hmm. Excellent question. Um, so the oligarchy is defined as the rule of the few for the sake of the few. So it is the deviant form of aristocracy, which would be rule of the few for the sake of the people or for the sake of the ruled. Um, part of why Aristotle spends the amount of time in talking about oligarchy and democracy that he does in the politics is because they are the most commonly occurring regimes in his time. And his reason is uh, account of why that is the case is that they, uh, they stand upon the starkest and most frequently occurring distinction, the distinction between uh, the wealthy and the non-wealthy or the wealthy and the poor. Uh, what is, I think, particularly interesting about the way oligarchy functions for Aristotle is its reliance upon a very sharp division between the wealthy and the poor. Uh, and that creates a system in which no one is capable of sharing in rule. So uh, Aristotle will go into detail to describe what it is like to grow up under conditions of stark wealth disparity. And the result is that the, the wealthy are raised from childhood on to be incapable of being ruled and to know how to rule only as masters. And those whom they subjugate are raised from childhood on to be incapable of sharing and rule and to only be ruled as uh, by mastery. And so what results is not so much a, a, a regime at all, but a kind of instantiation of the relationship or, or form of rule by mastery. Yes. Uh, as Aristotle makes clear, you write, a city of masters and slaves, a city whose members are consumed by contempt and envy, respectively, is hardly a city at all, precisely because of the absence of attachment between its members. Now, about the animosity between rich and poor, Aristotle observes, nothing is further removed from friendship and from a political partnership, for partnership involves the element of affection. And there is only antagonism and animosity between masters and slaves. So Aristotle worries about a polis or a city-state devolving into a city not of free persons, but of slaves and masters, the slaves consumed by envy, the masters by contempt. What Aristotle is tracing, you write, are the psychopolitical effects of wealth and poverty. Just as social bonds are systematically attacked under tyranny, so too is social cohesion threatened by extreme class divisions and wealth inequality characteristic of an oligarchy. What are some of the observations Aristotle makes regarding the ways in which oligarchy threatens social cohesion? Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, to get at that question, I think we need to return to the diagnosis of oligarchy and democracy that Aristotle gives earlier on in the politics. He offers us many ways of thinking about what the polis is, but one of them is that a, a polis is the partnership or a shared perception of justice and injustice. So what constitutes the political bond is this shared understanding of advantage and disadvantage and justice and injustice. 
And the problem with both oligarchies and democracies for Aristotle is that they both operate by means of a kind of flawed sense of justice. In the case of the oligarchy, the rulers who are distinct by one measure, that is their wealth, mistake themselves to be distinct by all measures and thus are deserving of a greater portion of goods and services. Uh, The democracy in turn, Aristotle argues, is uh, when uh, the demos takes its equality of all as freeborn and mistakes it for equality in all forms. So we should talk about that criticism of democracy presently, but in terms of the criticism of the oligarchy, what we see then is the the kind of psychopolitical perspective from which one becomes incapable of measuring one's own contribution to the common good and instead views the common good as simply existing in order to supply oneself with what one takes to be one's earned or deserved uh, uh, profit or goods. So what happens here is that the notion of a common good becomes increasingly eroded. Yes, and this generates conditions of social unrest and political revolt. That's correct, yes, because those who are not getting their due are not going to stand for it. <laughs> uh, and so you know, I think part of what Aristotle is trying to get at here is that that gap between uh, political structures and one's sense of where one belongs in them. Uh, And he's able to get at them because, in part, he has this acute sense for the way in which political structures operate as sort of crystallized forms of shared perception of justice and injustice. But those crystallized forms become ossified if they're not actively um, enlivened by the participation of the citizens of the particular polis. And so if citizens refuse to, to lend their breath, so to speak, to those institutions, those institutions will increasingly fail to speak to the perceived sense of value or worth or meaning uh, of individual citizens' assessments of their lives. Aristotle theorizes the people in some interesting ways. Uh, one, one point I wanted to draw out is... Uh, Another quote here from Aristotle's Politics in Book 3, where he writes, The many, of whom not one is individually a serious man, nevertheless, when joined together, can become better, not as individuals, but altogether, than those who are best. Just as dinners contributed by many can be better served than those equipped from a single expenditure. For because there are many, each can have a part of virtue and prudence. And on their joining together, the people, with as many feet and hands, and having many senses, become like a single human being, and so also with respect to character and mind. So here, Aristotle seems to be describing something like a collective intelligence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an extremely provocative and a quite controversial claim that Aristotle makes. A lot of ink has been spilled in trying to understand exactly what Aristotle means here. Uh, And I think in, in part, you really hit on something that what Aristotle is describing is precisely the ways in which humans are capable of sharing perception, of sharing cognition, of sharing an understanding uh, of what constitutes the best form of rule. Uh, And if that's the case, then um, a kind of aggregate perception uh, arises that would most likely be better than any individual or particular individual perspective. It is, I think, important to add, though, that, that Aristotle does Uh, um, want to maintain the possibility of a single ruler whose moral vision or or moral excellence is so great uh, and so much greater than those of anyone else that that person, while unnatural, should they ever occur, should be the one who is given rule in perpetuity. So he does want to maintain a kind of vision of, of absolute sovereignty that is the ideal, that this aggregate is um, uh, capable of representing in some circumstances. Yes, he, he says that it would be a mistake to allow the people to share in the greatest offices. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's also dangerous to deny them any share of office. Mm-hmm. Because he he grants that their capacity for unity does make them, as you write, suited to share 
in deliberating and judging. Mm-hmm. You write uh, of the demos, Aristotle's view of the demos, the people, that it is as though the demos names an existential stance, a realization of the capacity of the many to unify in such a way as to build upon and refine one another's perceptions in order to produce a single perception that is better than that of any one excellent person and which, when mixed with the perceptions of better people, benefits the city. Yes. Uh, and you know that, that approach to the demos, I think, helps us see... Uh, at least two things. One, that part of Aristotle's complaint about you know, what, what we translate as, as democracy is that the, the demos, the reason why it is a deviant regime uh, compared to its uh, more uh, sort of um, effective form, the polity, is that the, the demos can rule monarchically. Uh, and ultimately, for Aristotle, the demos can rule as a tyrant. Uh, and the conditions in which that happen are conditions in which law no longer has authority and simply rule by decree is what replaces law. Under those conditions, uh, the, the demos, the governing body of a democracy, tends itself toward a kind of uh, collective tyranny that he is concerned about. And concerned in part because it fails at the thing that when we talk about democracy, we have most in mind, and that is the sharing of rule. So what gets translated as the kind of positive regime of which democracy is the deviant regime, what we translate as polity, is a a successful instantiation of the sharing of rule. It is recommended by by Aristotle in those cases in which there are not stark differences in virtue between citizens, such that one group or one individual would be uh, clearly the one who should be doing the ruling. And instead, there is a kind of shared uh, virtue that that recommends the sharing of rule. Uh, And that sharing of rule would then be done for the sake of the ruled. Um, that model looks much more like what uh, uh, one thinks of as contemporary democracy in its idealized form. Hmm. As it stands in Aristotle, as you mentioned, uh, Hmm. democracy remains along with tyranny and oligarchy, a deviant regime. Yes, that's right. Precisely, I think, because of its difference from polity in, in this character or possibility of rule by the people to mimic monarchy or to mimic tyranny. That's right. The second thing that, that we, I think, need to have in mind here and that would be helpful to, to bring into our conversation is you know, Aristotle's reliance on a notion of virtue or excellence as a way of navigating office and who should rule depends upon the entire framework by means of which ethical or excellent character is developed for Aristotle. And that framework requires leisure, and that leisure requires a slave class. And so uh, while on the one hand, um, many of the things that Aristotle will say about a tyranny or about an oligarchy provide us with, I think, interesting resources for thinking about our own uh, political place and time, so too does this reliance on uh, exploited labor as a way of producing a certain kind of elite class require us to look critically at the ways in which Aristotle navigates the different kinds of regimes. Yes, and these are all elements of Aristotle's politics, which you analyze quite brilliantly. And um, we will unpack this further. Thanks, Nathan. (laughs) What all of these deviant regimes reveal, Mm -hmm. uh, especially tyranny, Mm -hmm. is the inherent fragility of the political project. Mm -hmm. The human animal, as you put it, is also the animal whose political character can become uniquely committed to its own misery and the misery of others, to creating forms of community that poison it. Said differently, the human animal has a distinctive political character that is marked by its unparalleled capacity, that is unparalleled in the animal kingdom, for developing extreme forms of psychopolitical pathologies. Now, when it comes to diagnosing such pathological political tendencies and tracing them back to some of their underlying psychosocial dynamics, tyranny and the tyrant provide an especially revealing case study. 
the tyrant's desire to serve only his own pleasure, you write, and to make all whom he rules servants of his pleasure, requires that he destroy the common good and replace it with his own private good, as we've already covered. To do this, he must dissolve the bond between friends, citizens, and family members, destroy citizens' capacity, and divest their hope. In their place, he must construct ignorance and fear of intimates, institute mass impoverishment, and eliminate leisure and leisured discourse. He must make sure that citizens are denied the means to know their neighbors, to come together to share their thoughts freely, in fact, to have the time to come together at all. He must sow distrust where friendship and familial love already existed. And to do all of this, he must destroy the bodily, psychic, and social integrity of his citizens and reduce their self-regard to nothing. Eerily, when I read this, I feel as though I'm reading an apt summary of the present-day psychopolitical profile of the United States of America. From the Aristotelian perspective that you present in Aristotle on the concept of shared life, what are some of the underlying psychosocial dynamics at play in the tyrant's asocial attack on human intimacy and sociality? Mm. Yeah, thank you, Nathan. Um, So there are moments in reading Aristotle and also in reading some of Plato's uh, descriptions of tyranny that feel chillingly familiar. Uh, I I do think we need to be careful about drawing any direct lines between uh, political structures of 2,500 years ago and our conditions of today. But it is also useful to look at the way in which uh, certain shared experiences uh, can be articulated over the course of time by identifying these sort of ideological dynamics or dynamics of thinking and action. Um, so, you know, in part, what is going on with the, the tyranny is this attack on the way in which human beings come to recognize one another as sharing in a common task. And that sharing in a common task is precisely what makes political animals political for Aristotle. So in the history of animals, he'll say quite famously, those animals are uh, politicos that share a common task or deed, a common ergon. So I've argued that the common task of uh, human political life is uh, instantiating this shared perception of justice and injustice. And what the tyrant attacks is precisely the sharing of perception or the the bonds of human community, uh, the bonds between citizens, the bonds between family members, and ultimately one's sense of oneself as a political animal. So his strategic deployment of isolation, alienation, and poverty strike at the very capacity and need humans have of one another for living and remind us in the negative of Aristotle's understanding of human life as a collective practice. And it's that collective practice of living that I think is expressed in this concept of shared life or the Greek Susan. So the tyrant is useful uh, insofar from the perspective of political diagnostics as carving out in the negative what is necessary for a kind of full uh, mature human political life. And that is the desire and capacity to share our most cherished activities with one another. Yes. And what you bring out so wonderfully in the book is the centrality of the concept of shared life or Susan in the Greek for understanding Aristotle's account of human beings as political animals. Uh, the concept of shared life, you write, illuminates the connection in Aristotle between the zoological the ethical, and the political. We've been talking about some of the ways in which Susan, shared life or human sociality, is threatened by the inherent fragility of the human political project. And what exactly does shared life consist? What is the connection that the concept of shared life illuminates between humans as at once living, ethical, and political creatures in Aristotle's account? 
Yeah, uh, sure. So I uh, construct shared life, as I understand it in Aristotle's thinking, as the forms of intimacy that arise from the human possession of language and the capacity for choice. The way that Aristotle talks about shared life or talks about Susan is to suggest that when it comes to all aspects of human life, from the sort of basic forms of nutrition to the highest level of uh, cognizing, to, to philosophizing, for instance, or to the contemplation of first philosophy, he uh, describes the human capacity to share these actions with one another. And so we encounter descriptions of, of shared nutritive functions, of shared affect, uh, of uh, uh, shared perception, and also of shared thinking and shared philosophizing. I think this really gets at both something essential about human political life and something essential about Aristotle's thinking about life as such. Uh, that, that life as such is given most vividly in those actions that any particular living being is uniquely capable of pursuing. By that understanding, uh, humans are, are most sort of exemplifying the kind of living beings that they are when they're engaging in those actions that, that distinguish them. And those actions, when shared, are an indication of that kind of communal or collective living that make humans political animals. Yes, you're right that Susan occurs in any political partnership as an expression of the impulse toward human community. Mm. Aristotle treats the impulse of shared life to live together as an expression of human nature. Mm -hmm. So Susan consists of the sharing of one's most cherished tasks, and especially in the sharing of life with virtuous friends. Uh, Aristotle writes, and you, you quote this in the book, some drink together, some play dice together, others exercise together and hunt together, or philosophize together, each spending their days together in what most contents them in life. For in wishing to share life, Susan, with their friends, they do those things and share in those things in which living together, again, the word here is Susan, consists. And more specifically, uh, you elaborate, in Aristotle's two treatises on ethics, Susan serves to mark out three aspects of human intimacy that arise from sharing one's days together. First, the sharing in joy and sadness, and more broadly, feeling with, and that is especially vivid in the relationship between mothers and their children, and also exhibited in non-human animals like birds. Second, the shared perception of just and unjust that forms the basis of political community. And third, the sharing in understanding and contemplation that emerge from philosophizing together. So even philosophy is best done with others. Mm, yeah, that does seem to be the case, although you know, it doesn't always sit easily with other ways of just talking about the contemplative life for Aristotle. So it's an interesting complication. But, you know, this concept of the shared life, which is so essential to Aristotle's account uh, of friendship, is also essential to his diagnosis of political pathology mm -hmm. because we can fail at uh, uh, living together successfully. Yes. Uh, I mean, I think that that sort of puts us back into this notion of the strategic use of poverty uh, for political oppression. We think about poverty as something like the, the weaponization of need right? Taking human need and then uh, growing it and, and deploying it um, strategically. We see those places uh, in which we can build political communities that are communities in name only, uh, that, that fail so powerfully <laughs> to provide even the basic forms uh, necessary or basic resources necessary for living. Uh, and that also marks a kind of human negative exceptionalism uh, that humans seem to uniquely struggle with even uh, the most basic sort of shared forms of, uh, of nutriment and of uh, uh, basic requirements for living. 
I was just going to add that that you note that Aristotle attends specifically to some of the more quotidian forms of this mm-hmm. failure, mm-hmm. The, the small resentments that can grow large, the petty insults and wounds to honor that fester, and the desire to overreach in particular, to take more than is one's due. But you, you also say that we can't overlook Aristotle's acute awareness of the human capacity for self-ignorance. And what you take to be especially distinct about Aristotle's thought, as well as Plato's, is their emphasis on the collective and communal construction of this ignorance. Mm -hmm. To the extent that human self-perception is a communal process, so too is human self-deception. Both human self-awareness and self-misunderstanding, you write, arise from the condition of living together. Yes. I mean, part of what I think is so captivating about the concept of Susan for Aristotle is that it it sort of has a a foot in what we tend to consider our two worlds. It speaks to an impulse uh, within us to uh, toward community or toward uh, sharing of life. But it is also especially vivid in the enactment of choice in those times in which we choose to share our most uh, cherished activities with others. So it operates sort of uh, uh, both as a kind of um, uh, zoological impulse and as an expression of human choice. Uh, and, And I take that to to be Aristotle indicating uh, that we we need to look at human political community not as a break with human animality, but as an intensification of animal sociality. And that intensification brings with it some deep ambivalence. For, you know, Aristotle will not only say that humans are political animals, but he will also describe them as dualizers. Uh, That is a a category of living being, uh, the complete terms of which cannot fit simply or clearly into a single category. And specifically, uh, well, there's some ambiguity in the text. I think there's a good reason to believe that he means dualized between kind of uh, gregarious and solitary aspects. And so the rejection of political bonds needs to be understood as within the human horizon. That rejection is not a form of being inhuman, but unfortunately an expression of uh, a capacity to reject this political impulse. And we see that rejection in, in tyranny and the association of the tyrant with the stranger and with a form of estrangement. But we also see it in uh, more, uh, as uh, as you noted, uh, quotidian uh, forms of social rupture, the ways in which small resentments build into larger and larger forms of, uh, of irritation and concern and, and ultimately foment. So, so this this tendency to swerve away from political connection needs to be understood as uh, as uh, embraced within the human horizon, and we need to treat it as such. You mentioned that human sociality isn't um, categorically different from other kinds of animal sociality, but mm-hmm. rather it's an intensification of it. Mm-hmm. But we've introduced one key term in Aristotle's politics, namely that of Susan, shared life, mm-hmm. which is simultaneously especially intense, as you just noted, and especially fragile in human life. But there's a second key term uh, that comes up and that we need to consider in order to begin to get a fuller picture of what your presentation of Aristotle's politics uh, is really trying to get at. Because one thing we have to recognize about Aristotle's politics in your analysis is that it is what you called Zoe politics. Mm -hmm. Zoe is the Greek word for life life as such. To be alive, for Aristotle, you explain, is to instantiate an operation of power, to participate in a force that infuses the cosmos, moving the heavenly bodies and animating all living beings. So Zoe then signifies in Aristotle's thought the intertwining of power and life. So what you identify as Zoe politics is a politics of power and life. And ultimately, and this is an important point, a politics of the exercise of power over life. 
Yes. Uh, so I think this really gets us into the kind of details of that dynamic that, uh, that we opened up talking about. So uh, Aristotle suggests uh, a number of things about Zoe as such, or life as such, uh, that it is an object of desire. It's something that we want and can have in greater and less degrees, that it requires instruments, and that the, the index of power is the generation of Zoe. And if this is the model of life that sort of arises out of uh, Aristotle's political theory and his connection with uh, other forms of theorizing, what I think is especially interesting is to chart the way that it undergirds a model of private ownership that galvanizes a kind of alienated stance toward human natality, toward the conditions of human birth, and that asserts and insists upon the existence of living instruments. So if we attend to the role of Zoe in Aristotle's political theory, what we find is a connection between a concept of life, uh, uh, an alienated approach to the conditions of human birth, and an insistence on the necessity of the ownership of other human beings. So, so that nexus of concepts forms what I am describing Zoe politics and suggests that politics is, at least in, in large part, if not entirety, um, the art of the management of human generativity or uh, the management of the human capacity to generate life, both in the sense of living beings and also in the sense of this other ancient Greek word, uh, bios, manner of life, so style of life, inclination, habit, um, affection, all of these ways in which we take up the task of living in very particular ways. Well, I'm just going to segue here and, and ask a question about legislation, because legislation, uh, of course, mm. plays a pivotal role in this uh, exercise of Zoe politics. Mm -hmm. um, because Aristotle believes that human beings are ineradicably idiosyncratic, living together and forming common political ideals and working together towards those ideals inevitably becomes a difficult undertaking. Because mm -hmm. in our extreme idiosyncrasy, according to Aristotle, we tend to find ourselves unable or unwilling to resist the temptation to put ourselves above others. So this tendency towards self-aggrandizement that makes ethics and legislation essential. Uh, ethics and legislation emerge, you write, as the means by which human overreaching, antisociality, and refusal of political partnership are overcome. I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit more on this role of legislation in Aristotle's uh, Zoe politics. Mm, yes. Uh, so that passage that uh, you're quoting from is uh, arises out of this uh, discussion in Aristotle about uh, the problems that arise in a regime when law is no longer authoritative and something like just decree becomes the way in which, uh, in which humans rule or govern. Um, decree instantiates the kind of uh, you know, psychological idiosyncrasies of the ruler and enshrines them in the city, whereas law is better capable, in Aristotle's opinion, of enshrining a shared or collective understanding of justice. Uh, so ideally, this is, this is how law would function for Aristotle. But I, I think we also need to look at the role that law plays in Zoe politics in particular, in two areas. One in Aristotle's uh, eugenics legislation, and the other in his uh, rejection of the common ownership of property as part of his criticism of the um, um, politeia analysis of Socrates in Plato's Republic. Uh, to, to speak to the, the former, the idea seems to be for Aristotle that it falls within the purview of the city to determine the number and quality uh, of citizens and that this requires then legislating reproductive acts uh, to a, a high degree of intimacy. So we see in his eugenics legislation suggestions about uh, legislating uh, the age at which people are married, uh, the length of time in which they are to engage in reproductive acts and, and the time at which they are uh, in his language released 
from such work. And all of this is treated as this sort of deployment of the uh, wombs and sperm of citizens as a kind of uh, what he calls a, a, a light ergos, like a, a duty uh, of the citizen. So this notion that uh, the production of human beings is the work of the city uh, and must be undertaken via legislation, uh, I think it is a, a, a sort of extremely longstanding and powerful tool of oppression, uh, and particularly oppression uh, that we see called to light uh, today in the reproductive justice movement, where we're really forced to, to pay attention to the, the criminalization of reproductive agency as such. So, so part of what I'm trying to do is think through in a genealogical mode how this uh, relationship between a concept of life, an alienated approach to natality, and insistence on the uh, existence of living instruments produces something like the eugenics legislation that we see toward the end of the politics. So I could go into more detail uh, about that, uh, but does that speak to the question that you're hoping to ask here Absolutely. It most certainly does. Right. And uh, you also, you write that the uh, legislation strikes at the heart of human intimacy and shared life, mm -hmm. dictating where citizens may be and may not be, and mm -hmm. what they may do and not do with one another. So the mm -hmm. legislator or the political expert is revealed by the end of Aristotle's politics to be not only he who is charged with the task of guaranteeing livable equity among citizens, mm -hmm but who further presides over the intergenerational maintenance and reproduction of the livable city. Mm -hmm. So it is here that Zoe politics calls us to critical alert, yeah. since, as you've been indicating, in order to realize the perpetuation of what Aristotle perceives to be the optimal socio-political conditions for human flourishing, mm -hmm. political expertise is revealed, you write, as having to wade into the production of bodies bred in such a manner as to assist nature in bringing about a physical distinction between freeborn and slaves. So without a steady intergenerational supply of quote-unquote natural slaves in Aristotle's model of Zoe politics, the highest possibilities of human excellence and partnership cannot be realized. What are some of the uh, the most noteworthy characteristics of this aspect of mm -hmm. Aristotle's politics? And uh, what significance do you think that they hold for us today? Uh, so uh, thank you for that question. I think to, to answer it properly, we have to go back and look at the rudiments of Aristotle's understanding of property. You know, early on in the politics, he will describe the first possession as the possession of uh, the milk of the breast or the yolk of the egg had by the newborn. That is the provision of sustenance by maternal labor is treated as the first object of ownership. And it's owned not by the producer, not by the mother, but by the newborn. And in fact, Aristotle will, will elide the reproductive labor, the work of, uh, of the mother, with a gift of nature uh, and, and use that model, this you know, uh, you know, seemingly uh, mystical gift of nature, uh, as a model for his very infamous Scala Naturae, that is his very infamous claim that just as nature supplies uh, sustenance for the newborn, so does it also provide sustenance for the mature animal by making animals whose living is for the sake of other animals. Uh, that characterizes the relationship between humans and non-human animals, and it also characterizes the relationship between master and slave. So uh, uh, we see then at this early model of the first possession a kind of what I would describe as alienated orientation toward reproductive labor, where the, the work of human mothers is uh, uh, glossed over as a gift of nature. And a gift of nature then that is taken to assure the hierarchy of living beings that is operative in Aristotle's uh, some descriptions of the relationship between humans and non-human animals and in his uh, description of the relationship between master and slave. So then to turn to, to that description, 
where Aristotle describes the degree of intimacy or, or you know, uh, uh, when Aristotelian scholar uses the word fusion to describe the relationship between master and slave. The slave is treated as a, a separable part of the master's body. So, so that kind of fused life of the master and slave has to be seen in its uh, sort of in the context also of the the notion of shared life between citizens, right? So shared life as this kind of intimacy of uh, sharing your most chosen activities with one another is only made possible by this by this uh, exploitation of labor that is the fusion of the uh, the slave's life into the master's. So we have to see the way that the model of political intimacy that is shared life rests upon this model of ownership that ultimately sees other human beings' lives as for the sake of the living of someone other than themselves. And that, in turn, is what will allow the kind of, uh, in Aristotle's vision, idealized image of a polis in which citizens are engaged in a shared instantiation of an image of justice and in the cultivation of virtuous acts. So we can't divorce that idealized image of the polis from the attitudes toward human birth and the ownership of human beings that undergird it. Yes, you make the points both uh, that in this model, there is an alignment of women, not with nature or what is natural, but rather with artifice and expedience on the one hand. And on the other hand, um, they are turned into an instrument for life. Mm -hmm. And one's possessions are the multitude of such instruments. Mm -hmm. And the slave is also a possession, as Aristotle defines it, a possession of the animate sort. Mm -hmm. So the city emerges from this account, you write, as synonymous with the partnership of a class of ruling men. Mm -hmm. Its fate is their fate. Its character is their character. Its actions, their actions. These men will be trained to rule their wives with elements of political and aristocratic rule, to rule their children with kingly rule, and to exert the mastery for which they have been suited by nature and apparently by design, over their slaves. Although their aim is to be sufficiently wealthy as to hand over the management of their slaves to an overseer. They can perform whatever virtuous deeds of which they are capable because their time has been freed up by other humans whose labor purchases them their leisure. This is all to say that the entire structure of their lives is built upon the systemic, ingrained exploitation of a massive labor class made possible by a model of private ownership, understanding of possession, and system of education. Mm -hmm. So we finally arrive at an understanding of Zoe politics as designating the political framework that emerges when the generation of life is seen as the primary index of power and the management of generativity as the work of politics. Most immediately, you write, it is exercised over the figure that would usurp masculine aspirations to generation and power, namely the embodiment of female generativity in the figure of the mother, whose potential reproductive capacity must be contained and managed. So there emerges a very clear intersection in Aristotle between power politics and the management of life where the production of an enslaved labor force goes hand in hand with the suppression of reproductive freedoms and the structural devaluing of women. We can see, you conclude, how a love for Zoe could turn out to be a hatred of Zoe, mm. and that the seeds of this hatred are internal to Aristotle's political model. Yes, uh, I think in tracing this uh, dynamic uh, this connection between concept of life, alienated approach to natality, and uh, insistence on the ownership of human beings, we see the internal tensions 
uh, of, of this model of politics, uh, many of which Aristotle is actively trying to resist, but failing to do so because they are internal to the very notion of life with which he's operating. And specifically, they result in something he is uh, very critical of, and that is the commodification of life itself. But what I had hoped to show is that that commodification of life is not an accident that uh, moves against nature, but is endemic to Aristotle's theory uh, of uh, the functioning of the polis insofar as it is grounded on this particular conception of life. And so what we can note out of this dynamic are precisely the internal tensions that produce uh, this approach to life as a commodity. And that commodification of life, I think, does sharpen our understanding of the most predatory dimensions of capitalism that we see today. And in particular, uh, the, the commodification of reproduction. That, that produces the kinds of legislation that criminalize the exercise of reproductive agency. So, so I want to end with a, a kind of genealogical uh, conception of the way in which the uh, this criminalization of reproductive agency has grounding in a, a notion or a, a culture that purports to be a culture of life. Uh, a way in which a particular conception of life uh, and what you know is often described as its sanctity, but in, in reality turns out to be its commodification, yields uh, a political uh, um, movement in which things like uh, the you know forced or coerced removal of uteruses is seen as an okay thing to do, uh, which unfortunately is something we're also talking about in the news these days. Wow. Well, Professor, uh, now that we've reached the end of our discussion, it is no wonder why you write on page 31 of Aristotle on the concept of shared life that to write about Aristotle is to invoke a long and profoundly troubling history of interpretation and enactment of power. The use of Aristotle and the Greeks more broadly to justify a handful of especially nefarious political positions and violent acts is long-standing and has once again reached a particularly high pitch, as you just mentioned. And circumspectly, this leads you to raise the question of why we should still read Aristotle today. Uh, you reject the notion that there is any ahistorical value to reading the works of Aristotle, making the case that the value of your study of Aristotle on the concept of shared life consists in tracing the manner in which an understanding of the stance towards Zoe produces a model of politics whose purview extends from the institution of slavery to the enforcement of private ownership to legislation of reproductive acts. Philosophy, too, you continue, names a loose set of cognitive, ethical, and political practices performed in particular times and places, a set of assumptions about the nature of human reason and its place in the cosmos. If this is what philosophy names, a set of cognitive, ethical, and political practices performed in a particular time and particular places, then how can we take up the practice of philosophy at this particular time, in this particular world, such as it is, in such a way that it is no longer party to the justification of a handful of especially nefarious political positions and violent acts? For this, ultimately, is the collective task and ideal to which philosophy for the people aspires. Thank you, Nathan. Uh, I, I mean, I, I look at philosophy, I think, in, in pretty much the same terms that Deleuze and Guattari uh, articulate. And I see their articulation as a kind of reformulation of Socratic practice. Uh, and that is that philosophy should, at its best, be the shaming of ignorance. Where that shaming is done, their philosophy is. Uh, to the extent that the history of philosophy can provide us with resources for that act of shaming, uh, for shining a light on the way in which uh, radical ignorance or motivated ignorance, however we might want to construe it, operates uh, as a, a vivid tool of oppression, uh, then, then we've done our work as philosophers. 
Yes, and we covered how Aristotle understands self-ignorance to be a collective form of self-delusion. Mm-hmm. So philosophy, if I'm understanding correctly, needs to be a Almost Wittgensteinian in the sense of showing the fly the way out of the bottle, a kind of therapeutic philosophical mm. practice mm. that uh, reveals that ignorance uh, as an effort to, I suppose, gain clarity concerning mm. the ignorance mm. so that we can do better. Yeah, I think that this is why this notion of shaming ignorance is so valuable uh, by shining a light on it, right? That in and of itself. Uh, provides resources for resistance, right? Uh, that that our job is to lend ourselves to the understanding of oppression for the sake of resisting it. And that the, the particular tools that philosophy provides for doing that are in uncovering these various forms of ignorance, forms that are uh, promulgated both sort of individually, but also collectively. Well, you've used those tools very effectively, Dr. Brill, in your analysis of Aristotle, since it uh, takes up all the best resources of thinking available to the modern philosopher in an effort to deconstruct that very tradition. And I want to thank you for your book and for the time you've taken today to walk us through your theses. I encourage our listeners to pick up a copy of Aristotle on the Shared Life. And once again, Dr. Brill, Thank you very much for being with us today. Oh, thank you so much, Nathan. Uh, thank you for your time and attention. This has been a pleasure. Indeed it has. This has been a solid work production. Solid work. Solid work. Uh, solid work. Hey, solid work.